we're looking at this passage in uh, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, and we've been talking about the fullness of community. And so we see that the text naturally lends itself to three different aspects of community life, uh, the first being church life or spiritual life, which we've talked about for quite a while now. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then last week we moved on to the next phrase, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. Today we'll take a closer look at that phrase, with all wisdom. But then in the future we'll be talking about the fullness of home life or family life and then the fullness of work life or vocation. So last week we asked the question, what was it that Paul did when he gathered together with fellow believers? And we asked a further question, what were the congregants' expectation when they gathered together, much as we've gathered together this morning, what was supposed to take place as the church gathered together? And Christopher Seitz gives us a good answer. He says, what he does, speaking of the Apostle Paul, is teach and exhort and admonish. So, once again, we said last week that this is a relevant question for us, for the popular church in America. Here we are, 2,000 years removed from the time this text was written. What's church supposed to be like? What constitutes the church as it gathers together. And for Paul, it was focused on, after he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, it's focused on teaching and admonition. Look at it again. What he does is teach and exhort and admonish. He uses his scriptural inheritance. You might remember last week I said that Paul, nowhere in the book of Colossians, quotes from what we would called the Old Testament scriptures. He doesn't refer to them. The Colossians, probably a largely Gentile church, probably would not be entirely familiar with the scriptures that Paul was familiar with. It's not that they wouldn't have known about them, but they would have not had extensive teaching in those scriptures. So Seitz goes on to say that when Paul addresses the Colossians, he uses his scriptural inheritance. I mean, this is the person who he is. He is a Jew. He says, I wish I could be a curse for my kinsmen according to the flesh. He loved his Jewish ancestry. He loved the Jewish tradition. He loved the teachings of scripture. So Paul is going to be that person for the Colossians, but He's not directly quoting from any Old Testament text in the book of Colossians. So look at what Sight says. He uses his scriptural inheritance to guide his address as he translates it into a new idiom to proclaim Christ as Lord, that's the teaching part, and to speak of the new garmenting in Christ Put off the old man, put on the new man. To speak of the new garmenting of Christ and the new life of the body. And since you have put off the old man, put on the new man, what kind of person are 
you supposed to be? And he's touching on this in the balance of the book of Colossians. And Paul, of course, this is his characteristic method of teaching is he teaches doctrine first and then he kind of admonishes or exhorts its application. So this is what Paul does in church. And I think we can draw the line from what Paul does in church to what we should do in church. And we started that last week where we talked about that church, and particularly I want to say this about our gatherings on Sunday morning, because we only meet once a week, I decided when we were only going to meet once a week that this session on Sunday morning was probably going to be more teaching than preaching. So in years by gone, we've had Sunday school class in the morning, which was, that was largely teaching. Then we had morning service, which was, that was an opportunity for uh, preaching, evangelizing. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means to speak or share the good news. We used to have Monday night prayer meeting, Wednesday night Bible study. We were just busy little beavers at church. But right now with just a single service, just one opportunity every week to get together on Sunday morning becomes more of a teaching session because I believe that's our first obligation. I told you last week that I've seen better, longer-lasting results from teaching than preaching. Sometimes preaching engages the emotions, which we could use a little bit of that, engages the emotions, right, inspires us. It's like, uh, it's like fast food sometimes or a quick shot of sugar. My mother told me uh, in the morning, the first thing you want to put in your mouth is a piece of chocolate. And I have been obedient to my mother over the years on that because that piece of chocolate kind of gives you, puts some uh, sugar into your bloodstream. Of course, doctors have a different opinion about that now, but who listens to doctors? So on Sunday mornings, then, this has become more teaching. I want you to look at this phrase again in verse 16. So we spent a lot of time You're going to see, hopefully this morning, how this verse comes together. We spent a lot of time, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And we use that phrase as an excuse, really, as an opportunity to kind of parse out, in particular, what my view of Scripture is, the authority of Scripture. And then we moved last week into that next phrase, teaching and admonishing, but look, Look what follows quickly on its heels, teaching and admonishing one another. And although it's not apparent in the English, in the original language in which this was written, Greek language, the plural in English for you is what? Did anybody say use? (laughs) I've heard people say that before. Or, yeah, sometimes we hear below the Mason-Dixon line, the plural for you is y'all, right? But we know one of the first things we learn in uh, 
you know, when we're learning grammar, is that the plural for you in English is you. And the context then in the sentence kind of determines whether, but sometimes it's debatable, whether it's, in, uh, whether it's singular or plural. In the Greek, they didn't let you guess. So when Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you, the you there in English is plural in the Greek. Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly, teaching and admonishing, and it follows up. Now, now it begins to make more sense. Teaching and admonishing one another. It is difficult, if not impossible, to teach and admonish yourself. I'm not saying that it can't be done. I'm just saying that the expectation in church, here we have the community aspect of church. And this is important to really understand what Paul is getting at in this passage. So teaching and admonishing one another in all. Everyone said all. All wisdom. Not just the wisdom you like. Not just the author you like. Not just, and I would say this, and and we have to be careful here, because Paul does, for example, Eugene Peterson, in his translation in the Message Bible, says that we should encourage and exhort one another with common sense. And as much as I love Eugene Peterson, I just think he's way out on a limb there. It's a one-man translation. Um, Paul's not talking about common sense because how many know that common sense can lead us astray? We wouldn't say that God has common sense, would we? Would we say God has common sense? No. God has knowledge. He's all-knowing. And if anybody is the purveyor of wisdom, it would be God. Paul does uh, speak in the book of Colossians about not being deceived by men's philosophy. And, of course, the word Sophia is the word that is often translated wisdom. That is the word that is used here. So this, you can't get any better translation than this. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I would say that all wisdom, given Paul's warning about not being deluded by uh, human philosophy, I would say that all wisdom includes all wisdom. (laughs) Not just biblical wisdom, not just scriptural wisdom, but all wisdom. For example, I I quoted this to someone uh, last week. If you want to travel quickly, then go alone. If you want to travel far, take somebody with you. Now, we all know that that's not a scripture in the Bible. But how many would say, you know, that kind of resonates within my spirit. It's not about the speed of the journey. It's about, do I have the endurance? Will I have the perseverance? I'll take somebody with me so that we can encourage each other. So when Paul says, with all wisdom, I think that's what he means. 
wisdom. We know there are wisdom books in the Old Testament. Uh, We know that the Bible is full of wisdom. We know that God is a God of wisdom. But we'll just take Paul's word literally here, all wisdom. So what is the difference between, you might have stumbled across this before, knowledge and wisdom? Uh, You might have heard somebody say, yeah, you know, you can have a PhD in uh, quantum mechanics or whatever, but you can still be a fool. Have you ever heard somebody say, an educated fool, right? I'm trying not to look at anybody. You You could be an educated fool. You're all looking at me like, yeah, yeah. Educated fool, that's, that's it. He doesn't have any letters behind his name, but EF, maybe that would work. Alan Ellis, EF, educated fool. Maybe not. So what's the difference then? If you, so I, I just, I Googled it. Uh, I said, what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? And you might have heard of this before. Knowledge is knowing what to say. Wisdom is knowing when to say it. Does this dress make me look fat? Yeah, see, I've already blown it. If I have to think about what to say, right, some questions are better off not answered. Oh, it looks fine, honey. Come on, we got to (laughs) go. So a husband might say, he would be a fool for saying it. You know what? I'm just going to, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to tell you the truth. Well, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? So this is where our culture has come up with the little white lies, and I'll just leave that. Knowledge is knowing what to say. Wisdom is knowing when to say it. Here's another one. Knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in the fruit salad. Somebody's here saying to themselves right now, I did not know that a tomato is a fruit. And and I think whoever decided that I don't I think it needs to be changed but that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Okay, a couple more. Knowledge gained through the studying of new information consists of a rich storage of information. Wisdom on the other hand has to do more with insight, understanding and accepting of the fundamental nature of things in life. Here's the thing, knowledge is easy. Now, I don't know if I agree with that. Fourth grade, I sat out in the hallway in Mrs. Auger's class because I did not know my times table. And what I was doing to four times seven, what I was doing, I was adding up seven four times. Jessica's like, yeah, I've had kids like you. And so she gave me a timed test. And how many know... If you know four times seven is 28, and you got to write out four sevens and then add them together, it's just you don't have enough time to finish the test. Uh huh. Mrs. Auger caught me. Isn't it amazing how here I'm 70 years old this year and I remember my fourth grade teacher? Mrs. Wilcox in third grade. Now that's a whole other story. I can't go into that. So I, I don't know whether I agree with this. That knowledge is easy. For some people, it is easier than others. But sometimes, my experience is you have to apply yourself. You got to do your homework, you got to turn it in. Wisdom takes, so let's see what he says. Wisdom takes effort, trial, 
error, pain, blood, sweat, and tears. That's why there are so few people in this world who are truly wise. It is a lifelong practice. So back up with me a little bit in this verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, and here we have this, what is to take place in church, in the community. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, plural, richly, teaching and admonishing one another. There's the community again, in all wisdom. And then we get singing uh, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Here what you have is the fullness, in one verse of scripture, the fullness of community life, the fullness of church community, the fullness of, can I make it any more explicit, covenant, community, church, life. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, calling out to one another. That's what Paul says, very similar verse in the book of Ephesians, calling out to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So why, let me ask this question now, why is the popular church in America in the mess that it is in? If church life is to focus on the word of Christ, teaching, exhortation, encouragement, warning, we saw uh, really from the first chapter of the book of Colossians where Paul uses the same word, why is it that the popular church in America is in the mess that it is? So we're going we're gonna to chase that a little bit uh, this morning. There's your grandma up there. Her name is Phoebe Palmer. You might have heard of her. You might have read something that she wrote. But this is uh, in a book that I've been in and out of over the past few years called uh, medieval wisdom, and this is Armstrong's approach to the subject of why the popular church in America is in the mess it is. And if you don't think it's in a mess, all you got to do is turn on the TV and watch in, any of the Christian television programs, Christian entertainment, and you'll come away and say, well, if <laughs> if the fullness of spiritual life in the church is to be the word of Christ, teaching, admonition, and wisdom, it seems like we're far from the mark. So Phoebe Palmer, 1807-1874, to she published a book called, in 1850, The Way of Holiness. In it, she said about the traditional Methodist teaching of sanctification, yes, brother, and I'll explain that in a minute, yes, brother, there is a shorter way. There is a shorter way. How many are interested in shortcuts? We all are. When I started home from Maryland, I plugged in my address in my phone, and it gave me a map. I chose the shortest route and just hit go. For an hour and a half, I was on two-lane roads in Maryland, Pennsylvania fog. And everybody else is going to work and they know the roads and I don't. And I'm grumbling to myself saying, 
they ought to have some way that you can put in your map, give me a better way. Give me a better way. I don't want to be on uh, two-lane roads in the fog at four o'clock in the morning with people behind me that see my Missouri license plate and say, he doesn't know where he's going, and, and zippity-doo-dah, they go right around me. So we're always interested in shorter routes, more convenient routes, quicker, faster. So Phoebe Palmer picked up on this because you have to have a little history here. The history of Methodism is John and Charles Wesley were for their whole life until they died, they were ordained priests in the Anglican Church in the Church of England. They started a method or an approach for spiritual formation that would help people grow. In other words, they saw the Church of England as needing revival, and all churches need revival at times in, in their history. And so they created this kind of parachurch a group that came alongside the Church of England and they developed these groups where they taught a certain method for spiritual formation. That's why they were called Methodists. It was, to some degree, initially a pejorative term. It was not a complimentary term necessarily. Oh, you're a Methodist. Like you have this formulaic approach to spirituality. Because John and Charles Wesley were ordained in the Church of England, John Wesley in particular was very much influenced by the Eastern Orthodox Fathers. He read widely in the material that was produced for Christianity in the first five centuries of the Common Era. But the Methodists then created their own denomination, largely due to the fact that the Church of England tried to squash them. But eventually, John and Charles Wesley, I don't think they wanted to create another denomination, but that's what happened. And as history shows us, uh, the Methodist Church was in need of revival, and so this is where the holiness movement began. Phoebe Palmer was an early holiness advocate. This is why she wrote this book, The Way of Holiness. And she is saying, you don't need the long method of the Methodists. I have found a shorter way. There is a shorter way. Oh, I am sure this long waiting and struggling with the powers of darkness is not necessary. There is a shorter way. Pentecostalism at the turn of the 20th century, I think I got that right. Uh, Pentecostalism kind of grew out of the holiness movement. The holiness movement, as it became lukewarm and needed revival, then uh, the Pentecostals show up and they, they begin speaking in tongues. Uh, the Pentecostals are become lukewarm and they're in need of revival. And who shows up? The Charismatics. So the, can you see a pattern uh, developing? 
But this is where complete and entire sanctification, that doctrine, became part of Pentecostalism. You don't have to wait for this. You can be instantly delivered. There's a shorter way. There's a shortcut to this. So, Armstrong says, the essence of Palmer's message is this, no more would Christians have to pursue a fraught and painstaking path to holiness by simply gathering their resolve. Now, this, uh, this probably sounds very familiar to us. By simply gathering their resolve, making a single act of consecration, and, quote, standing on the promises, unquote, certain scripture texts that seem to hold out entire sanctification as an attainable reality, they can enjoy total freedom from sin. So they use the scripture from the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. Look at it with me. When I say we can kind of see how this verse is coming together, the Bible can be used as justification for all sorts of untruth. <laughs> I would wax even worse and say that if the person who is teaching from the Bible, does not have, I would say this as a general maxim, does not have love as their highest hermeneutic, they're going to get in trouble. They're going to get in trouble. So look at this in uh, Romans chapter 6. It was interesting this morning because I'm looking at Romans chapter 6 this morning in the study while the preacher out here for Grow to Go is preaching from the same text. But he was drawing one conclusion, and I'm making another conclusion. How does this fit into what we've seen? We've seen that Bart said that in the Scriptures, the Word of God is not immediately obvious. It has to be sought. And ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for searching out something. Uh, Christy, we were working around here at church yesterday, and she said, oh, what sounds good to eat for, for you? And we had steak and shake the night before, you know, because Christy self-admittedly said, I don't want to go to the store. I hate going to the store because I, I stand in the aisle and I'm like, what, what am I supposed to buy? And I'm like, food? Food. Just pick out something. So Steak and Shake Friday night, and then we're over here working yesterday, and she says, what do you want to do for lunch? I said, well, since we had a hamburger last night, why don't we do fish sandwiches from White Castle? Yes, we're, we're really into health. It's got cheese on it, though. And onions are good for you, so some onion rings. And pickles, too. My mouth is all set for this. She calls me on the phone, and she says, there's six cars in front of me. I don't know what's going on in there, but I'm going to go somewhere else. How many times have you gotten in a fast food line, and you're like, why can't these people get their act together? 
Now, I don't know how long it would have taken for six cars to go in front, but if we are we if if we're in the takeout line longer than five minutes, weird. I'm done with them. I'm never coming back here. They, their food's not that good. So you know where Christy goes? She goes to Hardee's. And because we had a hamburger on Friday night, she buys ham and cheese. And the ham, they have it's like the ham you buy in plastic in the supermarket. They haven't even taken the rind off the edge of the ham. And back to our subject for Lent, right? Here we have patience chained, praying. This is our culture right now. Ain't nobody got time. The word of God is not immediately obvious, but this is where we get into trouble when we just say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's what it says right there in the word. Well, what translation are you, are you reading it in the original language? What translation are you using? Well, I'm using the King James. I'm a King James Version only guy. Well, we're, we get into deep trouble, and Pentecostalism got into deep trouble over one verse. Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. Now, I'm reading it out of the English Standard Version. And the English Standard Version reads differently than the King James Version. It says, this is English Standard Version, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Seems reasonable. It's talking about what our forensic position is in Christ. When Christ was crucified, in some senses, we were crucified with him. King James Version translated this verse, and I don't know if anybody's got a King James Version. I'm just kind of going by memory here now. We know that the old man, I think it says, am I reading it right? Was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. And if you have the new King James Version, it may have corrected that. So, New King James, they corrected some of these mistakes. The King James Version says, so that the body of sin might be destroyed. It's the Greek word katergeo. And so here it is. We're not reading the Bible in its original language, which was what the writers of the New Testament wrote largely in Greek. Here the King James Version said, body of sin might be destroyed. This gave rise to a movement that said, you can live, if you have an encounter with God, you can live a life of perfect holiness and sinless because the body of sin has been destroyed. So then, because the word of God is not immediately obvious, here here it is. You, You see how this verse is coming together now? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, calling out to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see see how much is in this verse that actually fleshes out, fulfills 
pleroma, that's the word for fullness, fulfills what church life is supposed to look like. We, as believers, who are letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, who are being taught, who are being admonished towards maturity and perfection, should be wise. We should be the wisest people on the face of the earth. Not the world's wisdom. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. Not man's wisdom. He makes that correction. We should be the wisest people on the face of the earth. And you take a look at the popular church in America today, and it is a circus. It's a circus. Whatever you want to believe, you can find some church somewhere that you can go to and they will scratch you where you're itching. Certain scripture texts that seem to hold out entire sanctification as an attainable reality. Now, I'm here to disappoint you this morning, just like last week. I'm here to take a verse of scripture and make it so boring that you just hate coming to church. That's my calling. It's a little joke, okay? You can smile about that. I'm here to tell you that the pursuit of holiness will be something that will occupy you front and center for the rest of your life, and you will never attain it fully. And somebody raises their hand and said, thank you for telling me that. I'm not going to waste my time anymore because I am looking for a shortcut. Well, ah, we love shortcuts. I used to take, um, what, what do they call that when you stayed longer after school and there was a bus that would come and pick you up and take after hours activity, I forget. It was the loser's bus. It didn't take you completely on the route that you needed. It would drop you off close to home. I'm in the fifth grade. I have a tenor saxophone. It's still in the office. I could go in there and get get it and show you what I had to carry home. It let me off a mile and a half from my house. I would go down Route 139 and then turn left on Valley Road and go around and finally to... I got walking that route one day and I looked over there and I said, my house is over there. This road is going that way. I'm going to go that way. And it went through the woods, and I found a logging path, and that was the way. It was a shortcut. We're all looking for shortcuts. But in spiritual formation, there is no substitute for putting your time in. Putting your time in, by the way, in community. You want to travel fast? Go alone. You want to travel far? Get some people together with you. Where we're going <laughs> is the furthest away from us that could ever be. If there's ever a place that is far away from us, it is holiness. I'd like to suggest, so here's a, a word that I'm gonna that he introduces us to. I would like to suggest that the essence of this teaching, we want a shortcut. 
So essential to the formation of modern American evangelicalism may be found in one word, immediatism. Immediatism. Lord, give me patience, but I want it right now. I want it right now. You could do it if you wanted to. You ever had this conversation with God? You could do it right now. You could make it happen. You could just snap your proverbial fingers and it could happen. Immediateness. The quality that makes something important or interesting because it is or seems to be happening now. The church of what's happening now. Was that in the Blues Brothers? I think it was. Remember? The Blues Brothers come into the back of the church and who is that? James Brown is doing somersaults, right? And the choir is singing. And it's not, uh, what was it? John Belushi. I mean, the guy was big, but he could dance, couldn't he? And he goes, him and Dan Aykroyd go dancing down the aisle. The church of what's happening now. It was kind of a joke. But really it isn't. People expect somehow a shortcut. They are the victims of this immediateness. Immediatism. Look at what he says. Pressurized pragmatism. I feel it this morning. You know, Pastor Allen, you're a little bit out there, and so we kind of, we sort of tolerate you, but you know, you need to get things moving along. <laughs> You're nice enough not to say it. Well, sometimes you say it. You know, you need to get with it. We need practical things. Practical means easy to understand, easy to achieve. Two plus two, Johnny says it equals five. What does the teacher say? Now that's a good answer. Excellent that you gave an answer. And, and you know, there's some teachers ask questions sometimes that nobody has the answer for. And, you know, the one teacher said, the kid was like, well, I don't know what the answer to this question is. And the teacher said, it's all right, Johnny. Nobody knows the answer to this question. So go ahead and give your answer. But overall, the atmosphere in teaching is that we want to encourage. Here it is. We're talking about the same thing that Paul's talking about. Teaching and admonishing. How do I exhort? How do I admonish? How do I warn? How do I encourage? We don't want to discourage a child from learning. And teachers, one bad teacher could do that. One good teacher can turn it around. You may have had one good teacher in your life that instilled in you Maybe a love for reading, or a love for math, or a love for science, or a love for English. Pressurized pragmatism. That, that's what we, you know, we got to pay the bills, we got to keep the people coming, and so the sermon has to be 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Homilies are popular, they don't go over 11 minutes, and how much can you say in 10 or 11 minutes? How much trouble can you get into? Pressurized pragmatism. The immediatism, so Armstrong says, 
of American evangelicals is also a way to God without mediation. In other words, I don't need church. I don't need community. This is where a lot of people are at. I don't, I don't need to go to church. I don't need someone telling me what I need to do, how I should live my life. It's killing right now the reason why our Western culture is in the trouble it is in right now. It's that exact doctrine. It is the rise of the modern self. I don't need to subsume myself or be involved with other people. You know, one of the worst things about, Christy would say this about Walter Gwynn. You know, Christy said to him once, she said, well, you know, I, I don't really like this so, this so, you didn't say so-and-so. I hope you didn't say so-and-so. I don't really like this person at church. And Walter Gwynn said to her, Christy, those are grace builders. I would expand on it and say, if your standard for becoming part of a community is that you have to like everybody in that church, you will never find a church. See, we don't want to talk about this. We want to go to church and just kind of, you know, miles wide and inches deep in some Somebody said, I never had that problem. <laughs> I'm, I'm inches wide and miles deep. The person that bugs you the most in the covenant community may be the sandpaper that is supposed to be working on you. And it may be me. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, calling out to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So if we go back to that first part, we spent a lot of time talking about our doctrine of the authority of the Word of God. Listen to what he says. The Bible is, as a set of human-mediated texts, complex, quirky. Have you ever read a verse of Scripture in the Bible and you say, hmm, that's quirky. <laughs> Probably not. Phoebe Palmer reads Romans 6.6 6 in the King James Version that the body of sin might be destroyed, and she writes a whole book and says, there is a shorter way. All this nonsense. You can be instantly delivered and set free, which translated itself into Pentecostalism. Now, God can do whatever he wants, and he usually does do what he wants. It's just like Brother Eddie said, you know. He said he was instantly delivered from the taste for alcohol, but he had to fight against smoking. Why was that? We would say, you know, you know, if you're going to wave your magic wand, God, just, just do the whole deal. I see men as trees walking. Here, let me touch you again. Touch him again. And just get it completely done. Because, and there's a beautiful song, sometimes when God doesn't move the mountain, it's because he wants us to climb. Oh, don't shout me down. 
How many would opt? How many would, would know that if God moved the mountain, it would definitely be a shortcut? So here it is. The Bible is, the word of God is not immediately obvious. It's complex, quirky, and many layered. And therefore open to a wide array of interpretive approaches and understandings. It needs to be read. Don't, don't leave me now, Lucille. It needs to be read and understood in and through human community freshly for each context and historical moment. What, what does he say? You could go rogue in your understanding of the Scriptures. You could just say, it's going to be me and my Bible, and since I can't find any church, quote-unquote, I really fit in. The majority of people who say that typically will end up not reading and studying their Bible. I've got a real good illustration to end on, so. Yeah, we've heard that before. It's truths. The Bible's truths cannot be accessed with any sustained effectiveness immediately by the individual believer reading his or her Bible alone in the closet by the light of a flashlight and individual reason divorced from the community of the church. The Bible was brought to us by the church. And there's been this 2,000-year long conversation about the New Testament and a 4,000-year-long conversation if we throw in the Old Testament, and yet I'm going to read it individually and I'm going to come up with my own understanding. This is when we become educated fools. All right, so last picture. You know what that is? That is one of the most complex puzzles ever made. So think about this this morning. Think of church in this way. Rick's got a piece of a puzzle. It's a really complex puzzle, by the way. Some of the most complex puzzles are clear plexiglass. No colors, just the shape. Some of the most complex puzzles, one of the most complex puzzles is a pure white puzzle. A grade of color from the bottom to the top. Look, yeah, Google it like I did. Most complex puzzle. Rick's got a piece of the puzzle. Paul and Cheryl have a piece of the puzzle. Reg, he's got, Reg is holding out on us. He's got like three or four pieces of the puzzle. When we come to church, we're supposed to bring our pieces of the puzzle together with us. The puzzle will never be complete without your contribution. Have you ever lost a piece of the puzzle? Have you, I, I know Paul and Cheryl do puzzles all the time, but have you ever gotten to the point where the puzzle is complete except for one piece? Yes. You can't, look, if you've got your piece of puzzle, piece of the puzzle, and you decide, I'm going to stay at home, and I'm going to put the puzzle together. How many know that's foolish? That's, that's foolish. It'll never happen, will it? 
even when we all gather together as a covenant community with our pieces of the puzzle, and we put the pieces of the puzzle on a table, that's just the first step, isn't it? Because we can't, we can't really finish the puzzle because Michelle has decided she's not going to come to church on this Sunday. And we're like, well, okay, well, there's some Sundays when I don't come. How many? That adds another layer of complication to it, doesn't it? Can I say this in a covenant community that I... I will never get the puzzle together in the way God intended without Michelle. Can you see that? We can't just say, well, it's obvious. Michelle hasn't been here and we got one piece of the puzzle left. And so we know we can't say the puzzle's completed, can we? This is what covenant community church life is supposed to be. We are supposed to put the puzzle together in the company of one another, teaching, admonishing. I like the rugged individual spirit of the American frontier. I can do this. If it is to be, it's up to me. But in church life, We are dependent on one another. You have something to contribute to my life. I have something to contribute to your life. And when community life isn't that important to us, you see, the whole community suffers. Amen. Thank you, Father. You've called us to travel this way with one another, to make the journey, to be pilgrims, Father. Not to be absent-minded tourists, not to show up for a while because we want to tour around Italy or Spain or the Grand Canyon for a week, but you've called us to this lifelong journey, pilgrimage of faith. Help us, Father, to be patient with the slow work, your slow work in us. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.